be reading from Luke 9, verses 10 to 17. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 866. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, had them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Better? Yep. That's a difference. Hopefully I don't have to repeat that. Um, so anyway, that's what the point of this whole thing is. It may at first seem strange, but it's, a, it's, our, it's our goal to, to serve one another in this and not have to guess at what each other's names are, but just look at the name tag and be freed from having to remember someone's name. Next week you can just go back to saying, hey, dude, or whatever, because you can't remember their name. So anyway, I, I want to give you a quick heads up on a few things before we jump into the text here, and I want to give you a heads up, especially with regard to something that's going to inform how we approach the next few weeks in Luke and Acts. First, I'm going to approach today's text that you just heard um, with the assumption that you are comfortable with the miraculous, that you actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God, um, and that you really believe that he could do the stuff that Mel just read about, feeding of the 5,000. However, um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not assuming that all of you in here are Christians. I, I'm sure that some of you aren't, and I don't want to alienate you. I would love to dialogue with you, uh, to sit down with you if you have any questions or concerns or doubts about Jesus being actually who he said he is and was. Uh, it would be a joy to sit down with you. So, but I did want to give you the, the heads up is that that's, that's the way that we come to the scriptures. We treat this book like it's history, like it really happened, because we believe it did. Jesus was amazing. There is no one like him, which is why he's doing things like we just read about here today in Luke 9. And then for the rest of us here who are regulars or would call ourselves Christians, 
Uh, I want to tip you off about something too before we head into this series for the next few weeks. Almost always we work consecutively through books of the Bible. It's our passion and our joy that is our regular habit. In the last year or so, we've worked verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of Esther, Hebrews, Lamentations, James, uh, just to name a few. We don't typically preach on specific topics. We think this approach is wise and safe because it lets God set the agenda. Every week, instead of us, the preacher isn't just up here to talk about exactly what he wants to, his favorite hot-button topics. You just turn to the next chapter in the next verse and you talk about it, whether it's easy or awkward or controversial. In that scenario, God gets to set the agenda week by week. But sometimes there is a topic or an issue that needs addressing. And in this way, we come to the, we come to the Bible with an agenda. It's not an agenda to make it say what we want it to say, but it is an agenda of seeking answer, an answer to a specific question. There's a distinction there. So, for example, you might want to come to the Bible and find out what it says about sexuality or what it says about politics or what it says about race. You come with an agenda seeking answers rather than the Bible providing the agenda just by flipping the page, as it were. So this is the approach that we're going to take for the next few weeks. Not our normal one, but it's what we're gonna, how we're going to approach it. We're coming to the scriptures with an agenda. We're still committed to letting it say what it says, but we have some questions that we want to ask of the text, especially of the books of Luke and Acts. And so today, more than anything, we're going to set the table for the next few weeks or so. So we have some prep work to do today to set the table so that we are ready to eat the meals of the coming weeks. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about hospitality. We are in the phase of life right now where our kids are learning to cook, and it's so awesome. One of my girls has learned how to cook grilled cheese this summer, and she loves it, which before school started this last week, she was making it every day at lunch for herself and then for her sisters as well. I'm not going to name her this morning or else I'd have to give her a dollar, so she will remain nameless, but she was doing it daily. And while she was eating the other day, I told her, eating her grilled cheese the other day, I told her about my favorite grilled cheese experience ever. Um, I was in Louisville, Kentucky at a restaurant called Tom and Chi. Anybody ever been to Tom and Chi before? Oh man, it's a mistake. This place is amazing. They have this grilled cheese sandwich that features a thick, cheesy center in between, wait for it, two glazed donuts. <laughs> I kid you not. Dude, just trust me on this. Put this on your bucket list. It is the stuff. The world is more delicious than it needs to be. But this leads me to another important stat this morning. Americans spend more than $50 billion each year on dieting, $50 billion, to fix the problem of food gone wrong. I read a stat this week, and it said that at any given moment, 25% of American men and 45% of American women are dieting. Food has become more than fuel for us as Americans. It's become an American obsession. But how can we think biblically about this? So I want to take the next few weeks and talk about food and Jesus. Now, maybe this sounds like a weird combo to you. I don't know. I'm not going to be talking about dieting. You're not going to be shamed into buying more kale the next time you're at Giant. I'm not going to ask you to count your calories or coach you up on the best protein shakes. No, I'm going to be talking about how Jesus weaponized, weaponized his meals for mission. How Jesus weaponized his meals for good, for mission, and how we can and ought to do the same. 
Maybe you've never noticed this before, but the Bible talks relentlessly about food, from beginning to end about food. Hear this quote from Tim Chester. He says, at the beginning of the Bible story, the first thing God does for humanity is present us with a menu. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Then at the end of the Bible story, God sets before us a perpetual feast. God likes doing the catering. He thinks food is a good thing. So one thing we gather from this understanding that the entire of, entirety of the Bible speaks of food is that this eating in the very presence of God is our future as believers. Eating in the presence of God. So food is not just a part of this world. It actually will invade into the next world. In God's providence, food transcends time. It will be a part of us for all of eternity. So I, ju I just say all this today, today clearly, food matters to God. Food matters. So we ought to have a proper theology of food. A theology of food. So the scriptures start and end with food. And it is prominent throughout. But is it the same when you narrow the focus down to just Jesus? Okay, granted, the Bible talks a lot about food, but what about Jesus himself? I think if you narrow the focus to Jesus, you'll see that the, that the emphasis continues. Here's what Peter Lightheart says. He says, Unlike many theologians, Jesus did not come preaching an ideology, promoting ideas, or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom, and he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. Jesus had food on his mind a lot. And that's no more clearly seen than in the writings of Luke. Luke's gospel is uniquely filled, more than any of the other gospels, with stories about Jesus eating with people. So much so that Robert Karras says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. That's the entirety of the 24 chapters. And I don't think it's hyperbole. Just a quick reading, and you, you'd note that Jesus is eating in chapters 5, 7, 9, 10, 11, 14, 19, 22, and 24. And food is even more pervasive than just that. But I want to bring this into even sharper focus by asking ourselves a question this morning. How would you describe what Jesus came to do? When he left the Father and came to the earth, what was he coming to do? Jesus came to blank. How would you fill in that blank? Well, there are at least three ways the Bible answers this question. First, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give up his life as a ransom for many. You're probably familiar with that. Also, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We know that. But this next one might surprise you. Jesus came eating and drinking. Quote from uh, Luke 7. Those first two statements that you see on screen there define the purpose for which Jesus came. That last one, though, that last one is something different altogether. It describes the method of how Jesus came to do what he came to do. Why did Jesus come? You can see it uh, on the first two bullet points. To serve, to seek, to save. Why did he come? To serve, seek, and save. How did he come? Eating and drinking. Jesus was seriously into eating and drinking. Look at how Jesus' enemies describe him. Again, Luke 7, 34. They say about him, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
a glutton is someone who eats too much, a drunkard someone who drinks too much. Of course, we know that Jesus did neither of these two, two things. They were improper allegations, false allegations. But there was enough evidence about Jesus to say that this was a lot of what Jesus did. He was known for being around food. Intentional hospitality was not secondary to Jesus' mission. It was central, and it should be for us too. And it wasn't just Jesus. He also shaped his followers to walk in his footsteps. Luke 5, 33, and they said to Jesus, this is uh, the Pharisees speaking about them, um, the disciples of John, they fast often and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, yours eat and drink. This is what the Jesus movement was known for. Jesus' mission strategy is bubbling to the surface here for us. Jesus, if I can say this reverently, Jesus loved to party. He taught his followers to do the same. He was a sanctified partier. He loved to party with purity. Tim Chester again says, His mission strategy was a long meal, stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. God eats. Isn't that a thought? Man, God eats. What kind of amazing God do we have that allows us to accomplish his mission? By doing this. By sitting around a table, enjoying food and fellowship. It's a good God that gives us this as the primary mission strategy. And I want to say, too, that it isn't just that we are to follow Jesus' example in this. We're actually called to follow Jesus' command, both his example and his command too. Radical hospitality just isn't an option as Christians. It's our calling. It's like the fabric of our nature as Christians. 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And how do you do this? By showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. There are many other texts that we could read from the New Testament. To be Christian is to eat and drink with one another and our neighbors with Jesus as the meal of our conversation. We share our bread while we enjoy the bread of life together. Now, Jesus, very practically, he would have eaten two meals a day during this time. When he was eating with the wealthier members of society, he would have had access to white bread, but for most of the time, when he was with the poor in society, he would have eaten barley bread. Barley bread was the bread of the poor along with some cheese, butter, and eggs. That was the staple diet. He would have rarely had access to meat like poultry, as it was too expensive to be eaten, except for maybe like on feast days. Likely he would have eaten fish on most Sabbath days. His beverage would have been wine mixed with three parts water. Honey was the primary sweetener along with figs. This was the diet of the incarnate God. But we're not really after what Jesus ate, right? Not so much after what his menu was. We want want to look at how Jesus ate. And how did he capitalize on this universal human need of hunger? Jesus capitalized on the universal human need of hunger. And we ought to follow his lead in this. So for the next few weeks, we're going to put a microscope on Jesus the caterer. And we're going to be looking at some of the meals that are recorded that Jesus ate in Luke's gospel. And as we look at them, we find Jesus often reveals to us who God is around the table over a meal. He uses our most common practice. The most common thing to humanity is that we eat. 
And he uses that as an opportunity to pour in, to invest in the people he is with. When Jesus was sitting at the table, as bellies were filling with food, souls were being filled with grace. That was Jesus' practice. That's how he utilized meals. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if that was true of our dining room tables, if this right here was true of our tables, whether just with our families or with church family or with neighbors, as bellies fill with food around our table, oh, God willing, souls are being, being filled with Jesus and his amazing grace. And so there are two pillars that are going to sort of support us in these two weeks. First, everybody needs food. Everybody gots to eat, right? Everybody needs food and everybody needs Jesus. These are the two things that are going to sort of hold up these next three or four or five weeks. Jesus understood this fully, that everybody needs food and everybody needs Jesus, needs the gospel. This is why so often we see him smushing these two things together, food and gospel around a meal at a table. So like today, for instance, in Luke 9, we see Jesus as the host. But in the coming weeks, we're going to see Jesus' as guest as, with an unlikely host in Zacchaeus. We'll also see him as just like one of the guys eating next week in, in Luke 24. Now, sometimes crazy stuff happens when Jesus scoots his chair up to the table, like in today's text where the food is multiplied. But then sometimes, like we'll see next week, he just pulls up a chair and he eats and he blesses the people around the table with a mundane but intentional conversation. So on the other side of these few weeks, my prayer is that we will be convinced that meals and hospitality ought to be a pivotal piece of our mission here at Trinity. Meals and hospitality should be pivotal to our mission here at Trinity and our mission to the world as well. It was for Jesus and it should be for us too. Jesus capitalized on a common need, hunger, to share a special gift, grace. So I want to call on each of us to follow Jesus' lead on this. We ought to use our tables, our food, our meals to deliver more than just bread. We should take courage, cook good food, offer good drink for the purpose of the mission because that's what Jesus does. Now I need to say that this is not the primary application of Luke 9. I think it's a secondary or third area. Why do you have to go with tertiary when it's third area, right? Isn't tertiary mean third? It's a third area, maybe application here. But um, if you want the, I think the original intent for this, I preached a sermon on this story a few years ago. You can find it on the website uh, in our John series. I covered the primary application then. Today is maybe a secondary or a third area application. But I do think that something we can do is that we can infer from Jesus' life his patterns. And we can seek how to imitate how he accomplished his mission. So as we've seen, he accomplished his mission by eating and drinking. So cultivating community and investing in the mission certainly involves more than meals. But it's possible to conceive, impossible to conceive of doing either effectively without meals, at least if we want to follow Jesus' lead. We have to do this with meals. Now, there are a bajillion strategies and theories on church growth, church planting, and church mission. I could take you to a whole section in my library that would detail those for you, break them down for you step by step. This is how you grow a church. This is how you reach the world. But when Luke describes Jesus' strategy, 
he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is how he did it. So for these few weeks, we've got some pretty straightforward applications. Eat like Jesus. Like, that's it. Look how Jesus eats and then go do that. So here's the big idea today from Luke 9. Jesus feeds stomachs to save souls. Jesus feeds stomachs with this ulterior motive of saving souls. And remember, the application all along is, let's follow Jesus' lead. So you could just read your own name there. Josh feeds stomachs to save souls. Obviously, I can't do the saving like Jesus. Neither can you. But over meals, I can introduce people to the Savior, whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time. Jesus feeds stomachs to save souls. So in Luke 9, everybody from like the paparazzi to the poor is hot on Jesus' tail, constantly chasing after him because of the cool stuff that he had been doing, amazing stuff, mind-blowing stuff. And so in verse 11 of, of Luke 9, Jesus looks up and he sees a large crowd advancing toward him. They want more signs. They want more wonders. They want more healings and more miracles. And Jesus does not roll his eyes as they begin to encroach toward him. No, he immediately considers their needs, and then he looks at them with compassion. The text actually says that he welcomes them. Just note that Jesus' version of hospitality here does not keep office hours. We found out in the other Gospels that where Jesus had kind of gone to here, an area of town called Bethsaida. Um, It's kind of like out in the sticks. And he had gone there on purpose out in the sticks to escape the crowds, to refresh his spirit, his body, his soul. And while he was there for refreshment, uh, he ended up catering a gigantic meal here in Luke 9 to a group of strangers and then taught them along the way, a lunch and learn, if you will. So radical hospitality doesn't keep office hours. It invests when the need is there. So 5,000 men are there. Some estimate that it could have been way more than that if you include women and children, but at least 5,000 men. And none of them packed a lunch. Typical men. I, I can't tell you how many times I have packed a lunch and got all the way to work and realized that my lunch was still sitting in my house on the ledge right by the front door. Uh, these guys apparently had left their lunches on the ledge by the front door. The disciples aren't as gracious as Jesus here. They're tired. They're probably a little hangry. They're ready to be done. So they come to Jesus and are like, okay, it's been a long day, Jesus. People are hungry and they're going to need lodging. They're going to need a place to stay. So let's go ahead and send them on their way tonight so that we we can, you know, be done with this day and, you know, we'll wake up tomorrow refreshed, ready to serve them again. But Jesus does something crazy here. And don't just gloss over this. If you've been a Christian for forever, don't gloss over this. We've heard this story a bajillion times. But take a second. Take a beat. Consider Jesus' words afresh this morning. Jesus looks at them when they say, look, Jesus, we need food. Jesus looks at them and he's just like, you guys feed them. You give them something to eat. And maybe you can just picture the disciples standing there, like giving each other side-eye maybe, feeling a little awkward, maybe thinking the sun had gotten to Jesus a little bit, maybe he was dehydrated. So they're like, Jesus, there are 5,000 dudes here. There is no way we can afford to buy all of them food. Jesus is the head caterer here though, right? 
uh, and he asks his staff to prepare this meal for this gigantic party of 5,000 people. But he asks them to do the impossible. He asks them to feed a crowd with no food. And I think the impossibility is the point. He wants his disciples to be exasperated, so exasperated that they turn to him for help. And so, number one this morning, Jesus uses impossible tasks to create desperate dependence. Jesus uses impossible tasks to create desperate dependence. And he will do the same for us. It's a daunting task to feed stomachs to save souls. It's a daunting task for us. It's probably really intimidating for many of us to consider this idea of practicing radical hospitality, where we feed friends and neighbors our bread for the purpose of highlighting the glory of the bread of life. I mean, think about all the effort included in feeding someone. I mean, you got a meal plan, you got to think ahead, you got to get to the grocery store and buy the right ingredients, you got to take the time to, to cook. The food, you've got to take the time to inv- find someone to invite and then invite them. You've got to figure out once they get into your door and sitting at your table, how are you going to keep the conversation going, right? How do you keep it from being awkward? And then you've got to figure out, if you really want to fo- follow Jesus' lead here, you've got to figure out how to cross over that threshold from the mundane to the eternal. Like that's the hardest part for many of us, isn't it? How do we get across that line into discussing something that's actually meaningful for the kingdom? That's a tough threshold for many of us to walk through. Well, Jesus is using that impossible scenario, the anxiety that some of you are feeling in your heart right now about maybe doing this for someone. He's using that impossible scenario to draw you to him, to cause you to depend on him. Just like the disciples were forced to do when he called them to cater a meal for 5,000 men. It's impossible. In the other gospels, the detail about the 5,000 people actually comes at the end of the story. So this is the one miracle of Jesus that, comes, that shows up in all four of the Gospels. And in, all f- in, in the other three of the Gospels, the detail about the 5,000 comes at the end of the story. I mean, you find out that there's this crowd following him, but you don't find out how big the crowd is, a stunning 5,000 men, until the end of the story. And I think what the other Gospels gospel writers might be doing by saving that detail for later in the story is highlighting Jesus' massive ability to provide. It's like the surprising plot twist at the end. It's one thing if he makes food spread out over 20 people, right? But when you find out that it's 5,000, that's when your jaw is supposed to drop and be like, no way! He provided that much food for that many people out of five loaves and two fishes. Impossible! It's like this literary device in the other gospel writers. It's a rhetorical tool to highlight Jesus' ability. But Luke doesn't do that. Here in Luke, it comes at the beginning of the story. And I think it highlights the, the disciples' inability to provide. The other Gospels, it highlights Jesus' ability to provide. And now in Luke, it highlights the disciples' inability. It's clear from the jump that they didn't have what it took to solve the problem. So I, I just want us all to feel this collectively right now. Feel our collective inadequacy. Feel it deep in your bones. Let's feel our need for desperate dependence. Can we get the gospel to our community? Can we do this? Our vision, of the, uh, our vision here at Trinity is this, to see every man, woman, and child in Abington having an encounter with Jesus. Can we see that actually come to fruition? 
Can we feed 5,000 people with five loaves? Well, when it came down to it, the disciples couldn't meet the people's needs. And when it comes down to it, we can't either. So as we begin to take our cues from Jesus and use our tables and our groceries to plow ahead in mission, let's fall on our faces. Let's confess to the Christ that we don't have the energy. We don't have the energy for this. We don't have the money for this, maybe. We don't have the desire for this many times. But then let's ask God to supply it in some really surprising ways. And that's what happens in the story next. You go to Jesus and you get supplied, provided for in some really amazing ways. So number two this morning, Jesus turns our laughable little into lavish provision. Turns laughable little into lavish provision. I can still see my mom in my mind's eye standing at the kitchen doing the dishes or making dinner or whatever uh, and hear her singing that old gospel song, Little is Much When God is In It. I don't know if you're familiar with that song. But that's exactly what's about to happen here in Luke 9. Little becomes much when God acts. We find out from the other gospels that Andrew, one of Jesus' disciples, he's kind of been milling around in the crowd, surveying the situation, finding the, the precious few who had been smart enough and wise enough and had foresight enough to pack a lunch, and he finds one of the people that brought one. It's a little boy with a smart, loving mama who packed a lunch for him. And so he comes to Jesus, and he's like, hey, Jesus, there's a boy here with a small lunch. He's got five small hunks of bread and some little fish, but I, I just borrowed Peter's abacus and did the math, and it doesn't appear that this is going to be enough food to feed these 5,000 people. I don't know about you, but if I would have been standing there next to Jesus, I would have laughed Andrew off as well. I would have laughed the little boy away when he offered up his little lunch. But Jesus doesn't need your math. He doesn't need your money. He just wants your dependence. It's kind of like Jesus saying, all right, this is something I can work with. A measly meal that I can turn into a banquet. So he tells them all to sit down in groups of 50. And this little one who offered up his meal in this society, back in this day, children were not regarded highly. Add to the fact that this was a poor child, he would have even been less regarded. We find out from the other Gospels that the, the kind of bread he brought were barley loaves. This was the bread of the poor. It tips us off that he was not a part of a privileged family. Uh, even the word to describe the fish there was not like salmon with like a butter sauce and capers. <laughs> it was pickled fish, the cheapest stuff that was there. It was a staple of a poor person's diet. So the whole scenario is laughable. A little child with little money and a little meal. But all this littleness means nothing because God is big. And when we depend on him, little is much and God is in it. You may not have a gregarious personality. You may not be a deep theologian. You may not have the largest home. You may not be a great cook. But don't overcomplicate this. Rosario Butterfield demystifies this whole thing. She says, hospitality shares what there is. That's all. It's not entertainment. It's not supposed to be. God can do mighty things through you, Christian, when you just surrender yourself to him. We can trust God's power even more than we distrust our limitations. You can trust God's power even more than you distrust your own limitations. 
And we know that God never gives a command without giving the grace to support you in it, to perform it. This pastor, James Boyce, said this. He said, do not make the mistake of thinking what you have is insignificant and therefore useless. You may compare your gift with all the greatest talents of the world, and you may imagine that your gift is worthless. But if you do that, you are forgetting God and God's desires. What is it, after all, that makes a great gift in God's service? It is not the magnitude of the gift. It is into whose hands the gift is given. If you will take what you have, no matter how small or great it may be, and place it in the hands of the master, you will find that it is more sufficient for whatever task he sets before you. Well, what Jesus does next, I think is comical. But you have to put yourself there. Put yourself there in that grass, in that big field. Your stomach is rumbling. You're feeling a little hangry. Do we know what hanger is? Just so we're clear on this, I experience this routinely. Uh, you can pray for my wife and my kids. But you're, you're feeling a little hangry out in this field. It's been a long day. But you want to hear a little bit more of what Jesus has to say. And you wouldn't mind seeing him do some more cool stuff. You're there for the show. But you haven't been close enough to hear the conversations that Jesus has been having with his disciples about feeding these people. You don't know that they've been talking about where the nearest food source is. You're just there to hear Jesus. And so then Jesus raises his hand at the front of the crowd. And he quiets them all down. In verse 11, he takes a loaf into his hand and he, and he prays over this barley loaf in his hand. So you're sitting there in your group of 50. And you start to peek while Jesus is praying. Because you're like, uh, Jesus, uh, why are you blessing your food? That is so dirty. Everyone else there is hungry. No meals to speak of. And Jesus is thanking God for his little meal sitting right in front of him. That's like my kids eating a white lightning in front of me while I'm on a diet. It's just cruel. If you don't know what a white lightning is, let me introduce you to that later this afternoon. I'll tell you all about it. It's the best donut within 50 miles of this place. Anyway, it, would have been, it might have felt cruel initially for the people watching Jesus do this. Jesus' audacity here I think is kind of outrageous. He's praying over food that doesn't even exist yet. And it's a striking picture. If Jesus is praying over food that doesn't exist yet, don't you think that you can entrust yourself to him with the daunting task of engaging in radical hospitality? Well, now something ridiculous happens here in this field. Jesus and his disciples start handing out barley loaves. Think about this from the people's perspective again for just a moment. Say you're like 10 rows back in the first group of 50. You can sort of see what's happening, but you can't really see what's happening up front. So let's assume for a moment that they broke the little loaves in half and the fish in half. That would have gotten to the 17th person and been like, well, sorry, <laughs> that's it. The rest of you, you're on your own. Yeah, but there were like at least 4,983 more people to feed. What about them? Little as much when God is in it. The loaves continue to multiply and so did the fish. I don't know how it looked. I wish I did. But it happened. And as the bread began to spread throughout those thousands, I bet there began to just be like a little murmur. And finally a roar. Such a joyful, astonished roar. Where did this come from? I love the contrast between verse 13 and verse 17 if you look at it. In verse 13, there wouldn't even be enough for everyone to have a little. But by the time you get around to verse 17, there were 12 baskets left over. There was more left over than when they started what they started with. 
I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if those 12 baskets were for the 12 disciples. And he was just telling them, not so subtly, when you're serving me and you give 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 until you don't think you can give anymore, I'm going to take care of you. I'll always be enough for you. I got you. So why don't we, church, why don't we commit to some radical, risky hospitality and see what God might do with our little? What unity might he stir up among us here? What salvation might he work in the lives of our neighbors who, if they die without Jesus, are headed for an eternity that is very unpleasant? We need to give our neighbors the good news of King Jesus. So here Jesus is saying, give me whatever you have. I don't care if you're a child. I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if the food you have and cook is terrible. Just give me what you have. Little is much when God is in it. Give me your weakness and my strength will be made perfect in weakness, Jesus says. You see how Jesus is using a common need, hunger, and weaponizing it for good? He's forcing dependence and feeding stomachs and fueling faith. I wonder if you've offered Jesus the measly portion of your life that you have. If you're anything like me, it's not much to offer. But that's his specialty, isn't it? Because little is much when God is in it. Do you have nothing to give? Perfect. Give that. Your nothing plus God equals everything. Why don't we test God out on this? See what he does. This is not an option for us, church. This is our calling. I hope and I pray that little by little as we are transformed into radically hospitable people. And many of you are so very wonderful at this. I've been the beneficiary of your care for my soul while you cared for my stomach. Good food with good care. And I'm really, really grateful for that. But you know, so many of us are new to so many of us. It's awesome. But how are we going to sort of accelerate through this awkward phase, an awkward period? By practicing radical hospitality. By grabbing a phone number after today's gathering and, and shooting a text later this week that says, hey, you want to come over on Tuesday night? We got food covered. We don't know you well yet, but we're going to change that. And then don't just feed their stomachs. Feed their souls. And we can talk a little bit more about what that looks like in the coming weeks. If you've got questions or it makes you a little anxious or queasy, we can talk about it even between now and then. Church, food matters. Jesus accomplished his mission by eating and drinking with sinners and saints. That's how he did it. This is how we will too. And the call simply is this. It's like three prongs here. First, capitalize on common needs. This is what Jesus did. He used the people's hunger as an opportunity to meet their physical needs, yes, by giving them the bread, but also their spiritual needs. Remember, everyone needs food and everyone needs Jesus. Capitalize on common needs. Second, admit your desperate need. This is what he forced the disciples to do. He said, hey, you feed them. He calls us to do the same. And when I say us, I'm not talking about the pastors, right? There's not enough of us to do this. We're all in this together. You don't get to sort of like farm this out to the professionals. We are all in this together. All in this together. Pray about this, friends. Tell God you're not enough and then watch him shock you with energy, with grace, with strength, maybe even with desire. 
Little is much when God is in it. Admit your desperate need. And then um, don't neglect, number three, the ultimate need. I talked about this threshold a few minutes ago. There's a threshold in most conversations that someone will have to take courage to cross. A threshold between the mundane and the eternal. Mundane is good. I'm not decrying mundane. It makes up the fabric of our relationships with each other. But I challenge you to commit to crossing that threshold with people before they walk in your door. I bet lots of us have friends and family that have given us a better understanding of Excuse me, I bet lots of us have friends that have a better understanding than we do of fantasy football, of, of hiking gear, of the latest Star Wars movie. None of those things are wrong. Really, they're not. They're great. Star Wars is okay, but the other stuff is great. Um, these are vehicles for deepening friendships. But the stakes are too high for us to have more urgency about fantasy football than we do about the longevity of our souls. The stakes are so high forever high, both for us and for our neighbors across the street. So when you get together with your friends from this church, can we agree together to ratchet up the urgency at least just one tick? To pray together before we play together? To ask serious questions of one another? How are you doing? No, wait, for real. How's your soul? To show serious care. To stir up affections for the Savior. To feed our souls and not just our stomachs. Is this not what God has done for us? Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you will help us become radically risky, hospitable Christians. I pray that you'll help us see that you have served up the meal of Jesus, the bread of life. I pray that our souls would be satisfied with that bread and so satisfied that we're overwhelmed with how much you've given us, that there are leftovers that we can give to the people around us. Please do this work in our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.